Hi, it's Psychology Nerds. Welcome to Psychology and Stuff, the podcast out of Phoenix Studios at the University of Wisconsin, Green Bay. I'm Ryan Martin, psychologist and anger researcher and host of Psychology and Stuff, and I have a great guest for you today, fresh off his epic talk on responsible and innovative teaching. Before we get to that, though, I want you to do two things for me. First, if you like Psychology and Stuff, please go give us a rating on your favorite podcast app. It helps other people find the show. Second, I want you to give my new show, Cannonball, with co-host Chuck Ryback a listen. Chuck and I talk about those things that we consider or should consider canonical from across disciplines. From music to art to literature to video games, we cover it all by bringing in the experts. So far, we've got episodes on Rocky Horror Picture Show, Super Mario Brothers, and more. I think you're going to love it, and you can find it by searching for Cannonball, that's canon with one N, wherever you listen to podcasts. With that, today, I've got a really exciting guest. He's a psychology professor at Cascadia College. He's the host of an amazing podcast called Psych Sessions, and he did a fascinating talk for our Excellence in Psychology Instruction Conference epic titled, For Innovation's Sake, Breaking the Unwritten Rule of Teaching to Become Responsible Innovator in the Classroom. How are you, Garth? Yeah, I am doing great. Um, I like how I think you might have written it ahead of time that the talk was good, so what, yeah. what if it wasn't good? What, you, what would you have done? Yeah. I was going to have to change that. Yeah, right? like, yeah, some quick editing. If it had been really disappointing. That's very kind. Thank <laughs> yes, you. No. I, um, I did write that ahead of time. I did actually love it even more than I uh, I, I thought I was going to. Oh, really? Awesome. Title. Yeah. I, um, I, I've got a lot of things. I've got a lot of thoughts and a lot of questions, and so this is going to be fun to, to kind of unpack. But um, I actually want to start, though, with uh, by backing up a little bit and talking about kind of your origin story, mm-hmm. um, if you will. Um, I think teachers are superheroes, so they all get an origin story. Awesome. And, and um, I want to know about yours, because um, you and I talked a little bit last night at dinner about kind of you know, how a particular experience might send you on a trajectory. And I'm wondering, just how did you become interested in, because you're a marriage and family therapist. I learned yep. that about an hour ago. Yeah. Um, or that's your background, at least. Yeah. Um, how did you become interested in that? Where did you go to school? How did you, how yeah. did you start doing what you're doing? I will, uh, I'll give you the short version. Um, and the short version is is that, I was a first, I am a first generation college student and my folks, um, they did, uh, they, they didn't really understand the benefit of higher ed, but it was something that they wanted us to do. Um, where I grew up in Canada, I grew up in Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, Canada, and uh, college is just a little bit of a different experience in Canada. You, you don't go away for college typically. And so uh, to me, college was, was an extension of high school. And so um, I never really was terribly thoughtful about high school. I was an okay student. And then um, I was an okay student in university and um, decided to follow the thing that I liked studying, and that was psychology, but really with no end in mind, except that it, it was not painful to be in psychology classes. or and, <laughs> and, and some of the gen ed classes were a little bit painful for me. But um yeah, and then once I got my BA in psychology, I had to ask myself what was next. And again, not a very thoughtful process, but um, I looked at doing more psychology. I liked talking to people. I wanted to help people as many of our students do. That's their answer when they go into kind of the counseling side of psychology, that that is the, the, one of their first ideas is that they just wanted to uh, help people. And so, uh, yeah, then it led me to graduate school, and, um, and that was in Fresno, California. 
Um, was that it, a culture shift? Oh for my you? goodness! It, it was a crazy culture shift. <laughs> um, uh, where I grew up wasn't very diverse, and Fresno is extremely diverse. Okay. And so, um, but yeah, I, Fresno. That period of life for me, uh, that seven or eight years in Fresno, was a real gift. Uh, it opened my eyes up to a lot of things mm-hmm. um, about the world and just about pe- different people's experiences. And then uh, I had had my fill of Fresno at that point. My wife and I decided that we would. Uh, try to move somewhere maybe that would split the distance between families. And so we ended up in Seattle and somewhere along the lines uh, of getting licensed as a marriage family therapist and starting a practice. I also got a class, an opportunity to teach a college class. And then from there, I just fell in love with college teaching. And, um, and then fast forward, I guess, 12 years or 13 years now in Seattle. And uh, now I have a full-time uh, position at Cascadia College. So that was, that's kind of the, the backstory. Nice. Which looks beautiful, by the way. You put a picture of it. In it's really the, pretty. That was yeah. a really lovely looking campus. Yeah, so, yeah. Um, very, very cool. Um, so, okay. So I guess let's start because listeners will, will not have been at the talk you were just at. So give like the 30 second to a minute version of, kind of the core of your talk. Yeah, that we sure. Can build off of. Sure. Um, so uh, the, the premise is that we are, uh, as teachers, we are teaching in certain ways that um, according to certain rules that are outside of our probably conscious awareness. And uh, who knows where these rules come from? Um, but sometimes these, uh, these, their, their influences, sometimes their rules that we hold, it could be a teacher that we um, uh, are kind of thinking about when we start our own teaching practice, uh, some teacher that inspired us, that could influence us. There are also just things we pick up along the way. Um, one of the things I try to do in my talk is to talk about certain rules, even in society, that um, are pretty intuitive that you would follow these rules, except that when we look about at their effectiveness, they're not really effective rules. And so in teaching, I try to make this parallel that this happens in teaching. We are doing things sometimes thoughtlessly, and that we need to build in a process for reflection, and that learning science and scholarship of teaching and learning can help us uh, have a really firm uh, foundation for making responsible changes in the ways that we teach. How did I do? That's, that is perfect. Okay. That is perfect. Because um, I, I think, so a question that I wrote down early on in your talk, but then it became a much more interesting question later in your talk when you, um, when you uh, revealed that you, were, that you have a background in marriage and family therapy, is that, so as a teacher, I see lots of parallels between my life as a teacher and my background as a counseling psychologist. That there are there are thi- there are ways in which I see these roles as very similar. You know that it's about in some ways it's about helping people change, right? It's a different type of change, but it's about using the sort of your expertise in in human behavior to encourage people to to change. And it got me thinking. Your talk got me thinking about kind of common factors, right? And like what are the elements. What are the elements, like the core elements of being a good therapist? And also, what are the core elements of being a good teacher? Mm. And I wonder if that's something you, you know, you could reflect on a little bit. Are there, is there sort of a core thing that, yeah, these things aren't necessarily, maybe there's no, there's, there isn't necessarily a best or better. I like that discussion. Uh, But I'm wondering if you could um, kind of say, what do you think are like the, the, the most important factors the common factors of great teaching yeah do you remember i don't mean to put you on the spot but do you remember when you were uh studying 
that uh, in a class, I think a lot of us in counseling psych had this experience of uh, an instructor putting up uh, these three videos. And I forget what the videos are called, but it was uh, Carl Rogers and maybe Fritz Perl and um, and um, Albert Ellis treating the same client. I forget her name. I, I have a vague memory okay. of seeing something like this. I was just talking to somebody and, and, and what he said to me was, when I saw those three videos, he said, that's when I realized that you can be, that there is really no mold to be a good counselor. They were all great counselors, but they did it in very, very different right. ways. Um, now, that's interesting because we know that there are core competencies of good counselors and right. and good teachers. And I right. talked about some of that research today. Um, and uh, so the question is, are there any shared competencies? Right. And... Um, I'm, I'm maybe avoiding the question cause I don't yeah. know. Um, <laughs> so what do you, what do you think? Yeah, I was thinking about, well, so I, and we talked about this last night, I often go through the exercise of like thinking about the, the best teachers I had. And you asked us to do this today during yeah. your talk too, thinking about the best teachers I've ever had, you know, and, and one of, one of the things I think is interesting is that they are the best for very different ways there are some who are hard on me right there are some who push me further than i i thought i could be pushed or should be pushed there are some who didn't do that there are some who were who just accepted me where i was uh there are others who kind of had more of a sort of lecturer style like kind of command of the classroom the quote-unquote sage on the stage sort of approach there are others who didn't do that right who yep. who who did the put us in small groups and i'm really just here I, you know kind of the quote-unquote sort of hippie approach of uh you know like hey i don't have grades man we just we're gonna, <laughs> we're, right, gonna right. we're gonna and and but that that's still connected with me so I find myself wondering why, like, yeah. what are the things that I, I will say maybe one core, if I think about all of them, is that I felt I felt known by them. I felt understood yeah. um, that that's important. Yeah. Um, well, what are those those Carl Rogers kinds of things that that uh, work uh, for, you know, for all counselors, which is empathic listening. Yep. Right. Uh, genuineness. Yep. Um, and then. I realized that I just cut in on you. No, I no. keep cutting in on you today, no, but um, I'm, I'm supposed to be interviewing. You, <laughs> well, so. well, no, I, I'm glad. I, I'm glad I could throw that to you for a second because I, uh, until you started talking, I wasn't sure where to go with it. But I think that you're right. I think there are some things like uh, today. I talked about reflective practice. Mm-hmm. I know that good counselors think about their. Um, their clients outside of that session right that they're really trying to figure out how can I help you and I think good teachers do that too um, where we're thinking about and we're not always thinking about teaching or about student learning in terms of uh, it's if a student isn't learning it's their fault we should be thinking if a student isn't learning there are a lot of variables in play and some of those are are me uh, are related to me and so um, but I think what we're we're getting at, and what I hear from you is is that there is something about the genuineness of the teacher. It's not the method. It's mm-hmm. it's like the person, right. maybe is what you're yeah. talking about. I don't know if that resonates, but it does, and so does so does actually the other side of what you said that reflective practice that I um I so I routinely I don't have one up right now, but I routinely will write 
like quotes up on my whiteboard, just something that I want to sort of inspire me for a little while. And uh, and they aren't necessarily quotes from particular people. They're just phrases that, and recently one of them was something along the lines of move forward, adjust as necessary. And, um, and I, I was thinking about that while you were talking about reflective teaching, because what's built into that phrase is adjust as necessary, meaning reflect and then figure out what's next. Yeah. And I, to me, that is such a critical aspect of being a good anything um, is to be reflective and then and then make changes based on that. And it doesn't have to be as formal as I sometimes make it. And I think that really came through in your talk that we don't have to do the kind of assessment that journals expect. We can can, as teachers do the kind of assessment that you just, you know, you get feedback from students. You look at your course evaluations with a a critical eye. You ask questions, you know. You say to your students after you do something new, you say, how did you guys, how do you guys like that? What do you think? Was it helpful? Not yeah right yeah um, it that part of what I I heard too in your talk is this need I, I don't this is not uh, this might actually be a Regan Garung phrase but but if if not him someone else so I, I'm going to misattribute it but but this a letting people behind the veil a little bit you know the the need to just kind of show students the science uh, um, things yeah. like that is that something yeah. That, uh, I think this was a high school teacher asked the question after the talk, um, which was, uh, what if students resist innovation? Right. Like, what if they resist your innovative methods? And I, I think I know what she was talking about. She's talking about if you don't stand at the front of the class and just like lecture like many of our colleagues do still, mm-hmm. um, students uh, might say – like you're not teaching. If you have them in small groups all the time uh, having conversations about psychology, they, they might think you're being lazy or something mm-hmm. like that. And, um, and you know, what I said to her uh, was I suggest, again, yeah, pulling back the curtain, letting them see why you have made the teaching decisions you make. And, I mean, I've stolen that idea from great teachers out there who do that, including Regan, including, uh, I want to say, Lindsay Maslin at Appalachian State University um, that that I've talked to who are just like, yeah, what's the big deal? Mm -hmm. Like, they can can know why and where you got this stuff from, right? It'll probably give them confidence in you. And I'm about to use a a very imperfect metaphor, but, you know, when when I go to a doctor and they want to (laughs) provide any kind of treatment, they give me a little bit of info, especially if I ask for it, on why they're doing it, yeah. why it might work, what the research has to say, and so on. And that's that's a good ethical thing to do. Like, yeah. you know, and when we're, we're talking to students about, I mean, I think that it is, um, I'm, I can't remember exactly the phrase, but you talked about, you know, responsible practices mm-hmm. or responsible teaching. I think yeah. that's a good responsible thing to do, to yeah. let students know I'm not flying by the seat of my pants up here. I'm, I'm reviewing research and making decisions based on that. That's and so true. In fact, I think your metaphor works perfectly. I'm going to steal it. Yeah. Awesome. No, do. I really I really think that is uh, exactly what we're talking about, um, is giving people reasons for what you're doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I am. Um, so you put up this list of, I want to talk about the unwritten rules for mm-hmm. a little bit, because a lot of teachers listen to this show. Mm-hmm. And um, thinking about those, you put up a, an interesting list. And one of the things I noticed is uh, uh, probably about 40% of the 
had the word should mm-hmm. in them, which I have a visceral response to the word should yeah. always. Yeah, of course. <laughs> um, whenever whenever I hear someone say, we should do this, or yeah. I should do this, or yeah. I, I immediately gravitate towards the word why. Um, why should yeah. we do this? Um, and I would even say this in, in my personal life. When I think about things like, I should not have a soda tonight or yeah, something right. like that. I, yep. I have to ask myself that question. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and maybe that's the reflection mm-hmm. element of all of this, that like we, it's just good practice to ask ourselves why or to ask people why things sh- should be or must be in a particular way. Yeah, the word should is often veiled for us. Uh, and I made it explicit in that list, but the the word should is, um, I think, veiled by um, uh, our, our bosses or administrators or principals or depending on our teaching context where uh, or, you know, whoever's writing the curriculum for mm-hmm. we, we were we have a lot of AP psych teachers here today. Um, and maybe they don't say should, but the should is implied, right? Mm-hmm. That this is the way that you need to be doing it. And we could even get into things like um, active learning, like responsible educators do active learning. They should do active learning um, because we know that that's the best way that students learn. And I showed you guys an article today that said, let's rethink this because students who have social anxiety problems, which is a lot of our students, don't learn that way. Uh, and so we maybe need to rethink uh, this all or nothing black and white uh, way of thinking through uh, rules of teaching um, and stop, you know, using should for those for those um, uh, strategies. Right. Yeah. And even replacing it with a word like can or uh, it feels even a little more empowering uh, or or, you know, and exploring and sometimes the answer is probably going to be, yeah, we should do this, but mm-hmm. but at least having that thought of, you know, why why, why should we? Yeah, and is it is it really necessary, and, and must we do these things? Because I think people really, I would argue, in a lot of cases, that word should is actually a barrier to innovation because we get stuck in this sort of mindset of doing things the way we always have Mm -hmm. um and that's usually the answer for to the question you know why like why should we do it this way it's like well that's the way we've always done it you know and right (laughs) you know our institution right now actually the whole state the uh, community and technical colleges of washington state are adopting this way of advising students it's called uh, guided pathways it's a whole strategy uh, apparently there's evidence behind it, but they haven't shown it to me yet. Um, and and I know there is. There is likely very good evidence behind it uh, uh, for some of the goals that they're trying to get. But mm-hmm. I'm talking to faculty about it on my campus, and that those faculty members are pushing back with the should, right. like why should or with the why? Why should we be doing this? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that is uh, that's the right question. Mm-hmm. And there should be data to support the things that we are doing. And right. even if we have data, you still have to be careful and have a critical eye towards it and be thinking through the why and the context that you are trying to implement these things in. But for academics in particular, I mean, we should we should <laughs> got to be careful not using that <laughs> word now. But uh, we think critically um, about the kinds of things that we're asked to do. And and I think that our students, um, again, back to students, uh, we should, we should give our, our students that, that same, uh, that same right. answer. Yep. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think, you know, I, I don't object to the, to the 
to the use of the word should so much as I always want to have the question afterwards. Yeah, the conversation reflection. Yeah. Yep. And sometimes the answer is, yeah, we should do this. Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes it's not. But I just want to make sure that we're actually having that conversation. Yeah. And those questions that I listed there, I mean, that that's a little bit of a window into my mind. Mm-hmm. Because uh, I told you that I'm a I'm a bit of a rule follower, and many people in the room right. would also also classified or identified themselves as rule followers, and uh, these are not not like the unwritten rules. The reason I talk about unwritten rules is because the administrators will tell you the the bosses will tell you what you should do, right? right. And you can ask why and all kinds of things, but. Uh, we, uh, when we, when we look at the unwritten rules of why we do what we do, a lot of times these shoulds are in play and we don't even, we didn't even know they were in play, mm-hmm. that they're guiding our teaching practices. And if we don't ever ask the question, why, right. if we don't ever reflect on it, then, uh, these things are in, in play and affecting our students and, um, and we can find maybe better ways of doing things if we start asking that question. You know, you, um, so I took a picture of one of your slides because I, I, I thought it nicely set the set the tone. Uh, you said uh, there are unwritten rules of, of teaching, which I agree. Good teachers break some of them. I also agree, which opens the door for innovation. And then number four is responsible innovation is the ultimate goal. And I think there's a real, um, I, you know, I, I also have a visceral reaction to buzzwords. And I get the sense from your talk that you do as well. I do. Um, and uh, and I should be clear, a negative is visceral. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but I think what I loved about point four there is that you said responsible innovation. That yeah. This isn't innovation for innovation's sake. Title of your talk that there's that there that we're doing this for a reason with a particular goal in mind. And I think that's a really important thing for people to hear um, because there is a tendency. To, to just buzzword away, and you used a great quote, and that I won't try and repeat, but from, I think... Was it was it, Chew and Serban. It, it was know. Chew and Serban. Okay, I didn't yeah. want to misattribute it, um, which was a great quote uh, mm-hmm. highlighting a lot yeah. of that. And, and those buzzwords are so... They're everywhere in teaching and administration and teaching at every level, I think. Um, so let's, uh, I want to talk about something real quick that we talked, uh, first of all, I will say, you know, one of the things you highlighted in your talk is, um, you know, pick one thing that you want to try and do differently. And I can tell you, I actually, based on your talk, I think that I, uh, took three things. I I hope that's all right. I'm doing more than one. (laughs) Love it. (laughs) Um, but I wanted, I was hoping you might tell us more about the we and us Thing, which I know wasn't your idea, yeah. but it's something you tried to do differently. I felt like that was the kind of thing that more people should hear. Uh, and so, yeah, great. Well, you know, the one thing, by the way, I'll just backtrack. Okay. When I encourage people to take one thing from a talk or a day, it doesn't even need to be from my talk or my my workshop or whatever. But um, I just, when people are coming into these kinds of conferences, it can be overwhelming, and I find a lot of freedom in just looking for one thing. And um, I honestly really feel those one things, they grab you. You don't have Mm -hmm. to look for them. It's like that one point, that one moment in that one talk that really grabbed me. And to me, I say, follow that Mm -hmm. wherever that leads, you know, don't put a bunch of pressure on yourself when you go to conferences. Um, So anyway, but to your, to your question, I was trying to reflect how um, innovative, um, responsible innovation in your classroom uh, 
I was giving examples at the end of my talk and I was trying to reflect how easy this process can be. Um, and it's it, maybe not easy, but simple in some ways. And so I saw Alana Connor, um, she, uh, formerly from Stanford, or I think she still does some work with Stanford. Now she work, she writes and talks a lot um, and consults a lot. But I saw her give this talk about um, using certain language uh, with our students, especially in our printed materials, um, and how we use often very individualistic uh, types of language, like uh, that, like I and you. Um, so uh, you will learn this in this assignment, something like that. Um, and what she did, especially in our um, our course policies and things like that in a syllabus. And so she talked about how they did research, I think at Stanford, where they did these inclusive um, kind of syllabi versus uh, traditional syllabi, very uh, Western individualistic. And they found that the inclusive syllabi, so the ones that you use um, – uh, more we and us kinds of kind of language um, that it had uh, outcome. It, it had benefits to learning for uh, students from certain backgrounds, but also for all students right. to some extent. And it was significant. And I remember seeing that research and thinking, well, that's easy. I can just, mm -hmm. I can just change the way I write in my syllabus. And so even before the course outline in my syllabus, the first thing I do is I have a paragraph and I showed you all this paragraph where I just welcome students to the class and I use all kinds of collective language in there about how we will learn together. And uh, this is a community of practice. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, I can't remember exactly all the things, but uh, that was, I'm really proud of, of that part of my talk because I feel like that's where if there was... If I ever got heady in the talk, talking about scholarship of teaching, learning, and learning science, and how those lead us to reflective practices that can become foundations for in, uh, uh, responsible innovation, if that ever, any of that got lost, I think it was at that moment mm -hmm. where people are like, "I get it, I can do that," right? You know, right. and so, and what I was reflecting was that I heard research, I reflected on it how I could put it into the context of my courses. What would it work? How would it work? I wrote this up, I applied it in my class, and then assessment, and to me, very casual assessment was the last piece that, that I would encourage people to do when they do something like that. Ask students what it was like. Uh, look for it in the student evaluations at the end of the quarter. So, yeah, that was that. Wonderful. So one of the things you and I talked about as we walked over here was um, the kind of the some of the rigid structures that teachers have to work in and how that sometimes blocks innovation and how I routinely as I'm talking to I think and you actually even mentioned this in your talk you said it's a privilege to be able to kind of structure the content I have in class and and cut things out as I see fit and that some teachers high school teachers AP uh, psych teachers don't necessarily have that luxury mm -hmm. how do we is is there a way to push back on that? Is there a way to kind of, because I see that as a real barrier um, for a lot of people to being able to to innovate and be able to try new things when they say, well, I can't because I have to cover this, this, and this. I'm beholden to a test. I'm beholden to particular mm -hmm. assessments and things like that. Yeah, I know you're, you're way more involved in things like AP reading and things like that mm -hmm. than I am. Are there ways to, to address that or to, to encourage alternatives? Yeah. 
Uh, we have been invested. Now, there are people who are much more learned about AP Psych than I am and who have much more experience of it. So uh, excuse my um, my naivety if there is any here, but um, for those of you who are listening. But here's, here's what I think. Um, the AP um, machine has been operating in a certain way for a long time. Mm-hmm. And there are very good people at College Board right now, and they are shifting things. And I think it's going to take a while, mm-hmm. but I think the shift is beginning right okay. now. So, um, but they have invested um, so much for so long into uh, really regurgitating content. Mm-hmm. Although the exam itself, the free response questions are very applied, but they're very applied in very particular ways, right? Mm-hmm. And and they pick seven um, uh, concepts for those free response questions for each of those, or there's seven points to earn, but. Um, those would not be, I, I think they are rarely the most important points that I think students need to learn or could take out of Psych 100 that could actually benefit their lives or their communities or something like that. So um, that makes me question when, you know, um, the whole the whole system. Um, mm-hmm. I wish it was more meaningful, but um, there are times where students and, and instruct, instructors just have to prepare students to regurgitate this content. Um now, great instructors in high school can um, weave that together into some like more holistic understanding of uh, you know human behavior in particular, um, some integrative themes and in, in those kinds of things. But I get that um, a, a, an instructor with a social studies uh, teaching credential, who is also teaching a history class or a political science class or a PE class or something like that, that they um, they have a lot going on and they just have to get through the content. They don't have the luxury of being able to um, think through all the integrated themes. So that's one thing. I think it's a long it's a long history and things are now shifting. Actually, there's somebody new. Amy Feinberg is now the head of curriculum for AP Psychology and she is great. And that is coming down from... Um, I think the vice president of College Board is really trying to shift things. And now uh, AP or College Board is now working with APA mm-hmm. and the Introductory Psychology Initiative. That's good. And they are trying to take their cues from where APA is going. And APA right now is working on recommendations for the Introductory Psychology course, which will be released next year. And that should change things. But this whole, and I wouldn't say College Board is the only machine involved in here. Publishers are, are part of this whole machine that keeps this thing going. It's not the way that the course should be taught, but we've invested in this way for so long that it is hard to pull the carpet out right now. Right. And so it is the change and the transformation is going to take time, but I think we're on a good trajectory. That is good to hear. Um, okay, so before we go, I, I hope you will tell us a little bit about Shared Space for All. Cool. Can you do that? Yeah. Thanks so much for bringing that up. Um, yeah. SharedSpaceForAll.org uh, is uh, a nonprofit organization that my wife and I founded in uh, 2016. And uh, we work on the prevention side of prostitution in Thailand. Um, and so, really quickly, um, when you go into any of the big cities in Thailand, prostitution is uh, just a major tourist activity there, unfortunately, and local activity actually as well. And the the prostitute the prostitutes who are working, the sex workers, um, don't come from uh, they don't 
come from all parts of Thailand. They come from the poorest parts of Thailand. Mm-hmm. Those families are so poor that their kids will leave uh, at some point to go to the cities to try to make money, to send back to the family to take care of them. So it's a very it's a very dignified thing, actually. Um, and they don't plan to get into prostitution, but they end up in prostitution. And so what we do is we are in the poorest region of Thailand, which is called Isan. And we have a team of Thai folks out there who uh, educate and mentor our kids in the village. So... Um, at any time, we're you know we're, we've got about forty kids in the program, and we are mentoring them, we're educating them, we're telling them that they can do the things that they set their mind to. They can go on and they can finish high school and go to college. We have this year our first four students who have graduated high school and are going to college, which is unheard of in this village. Um, and so that's happening. And uh, we are just trying to, uh, like we, we like to say, we're just trying to do something good in the world. I think a lot of people are trying to uh, figure out what they can do to change um, particularly all the bad news that we hear all the time in the news cycle or whatever. What kind of power do we have to do something good? And we want to give people the opportunity to partner with us because it is very, very good work. Um, and it really does serve kids well, which um, is easy to sell to people, honestly. Um, and it has a huge impact. Um and what we ask people to do is to partner with us at $10 a month. It's nothing for us as Westerners. I don't mean to, maybe for, for some people that is actually a lot. Um, but compared to Thai people, it's not a lot of money in the United States. And for 10 bucks a month, uh, they can partner with us. And um, we can do some really good stuff through education and mentoring for these kids. So, um, yeah, that's Very that's cool. the spiel. Sharedspaceforall.org. That's right. Awesome. Thank that you. That is wonderful. You bet. Do you have anything to add before we finish up? No, I just want to say that uh, coming out here has been so great. I came out here a couple of years ago for um, the Summit on the National Assessment of Psychology, APA's uh, initiative, and I really love this campus and this institution. Um, the people you have working in this department have always just been so amazing. They become friends of mine nationally when I see somebody like Georgina um, at um, a, you know APA or STP stuff or something like mm-hmm. that. And so uh, thanks for having me. Thanks to the institution because – um, you guys have really supported uh, undergraduate psychology, and um, and that's my world. So uh, I appreciate you guys and, and this institution. Oh, well, thank you for saying so, and we we love having you here. This was it was such a good talk. Um, I'm so thankful. You know, I'm I am as of this year less involved in the Excellence in Psychology Instruction Conference that's happening that Jason and Janelle uh, really ran with that this year. I'm so glad that they reached out to you and brought you in because that was a great talk and I've loved well, thank uh, you getting very to much. know you. So, um, where can people find you to learn more about you do? Are you on Twitter or anywhere else? Twitter at Garth Newfeld, I think is my tag, my handle. Right. Um, Will you spell Newfeld for people? N-E-U-F-E-L-D. And uh, I'm not as active as, as some people. People, but you can always find me at uh, through email gnewfeld, G-N-E-U-F-E-L-D at cascadia.edu. Uh, feel free to email. Awesome. Uh, and you can follow me on Twitter. That's at RyCMart, R-Y-C-M-A-R-T, or Psych and Stuff on Twitter and Facebook. That's at Psych and Stuff. Go there for additional information about psychology, ask questions, or even suggest an episode. Psychology and Stuff is a production of Phoenix Studios at the University of Wisconsin-Green Bay. The executive producer is me, Ryan Martin, and the production manager is Kate Farley. Our audio production coordinator is Bill Salick, and the engineer for today's show is also me, Ryan Martin. Our graphic designer is Kimberly Vlees. 
Special thanks to our guest, Garth Neufeld. If you haven't already, please make sure to rate, review, and subscribe to us on your favorite podcast platform. You can also head over to our website, uwgb.edu slash podcast, to check out past episodes of this and all our shows. I'm your host, Ryan Martin. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.